Hello and welcome to What Moves Us, the podcast where we ask what moves us or more accurately what's going to move us in future. With the Rail Innovation Group's Johanna Randall and Liam Henderson we look at debates, themes and decisions of the minutes that will impact on the way we get about in the future. Hello and welcome to the latest Rail Innovation Group podcast. That was um, my very sensible way of saying that we are here again to talk about some of our latest work and we've got all of us, the dream team, are back in the room in Soho. So I'm Deb Carson and my two marvellous colleagues are here too. I'm Liam Henderson, Chair of the Rail Innovation Group. And I'm Johanna Randall, down from sunny Scotland, or not so sunny Scotland. And we are all wearing <laughs> Rail Innovation Group blue. Which is, yes, which was completely, you know... You copied me. Well, you copied me. we just did it subliminally. We all knew that we should be in Rail Innovation Group colours today. And um, I just did another introduction, which was wrong because Liam was sniffing over it. And in that one, I said that it was sunny in Soho, but Johanna has just pointed out actually it's not as sunny as it has been, and that actually she has bought the drizzle from Scotland. So thanks, thanks for that. Cheers. We did need a bit, right? So, Johanna, lovely to see you in the room with us rather than through the Zoom too, but why are you in London? Um, mixture of things, really few events to go to, but um, also with my other interest hats on. Um, today we are presenting um, Future Travel Studio. Um, we are two years old um, this week, and as part of our anniversary celebrations and sort of like growing the business, we're um, holding a meetup with Rail Innovation Group because we've joined. <laughs> <laughs> and we will welcome you publicly later. I do see a bottle of gin over in the corner, so I'm hoping that that's the celebratory gin. Celebratory gin, then the Mediterranean gin, because it's and summer, so of course we've got to have Mediterranean gin. And I've also made some some strawberry and champagne cupcakes oh, because it's summer. Oh, didn't you have to leave early? <laughs> not before I sampled the gin and the cakes, though. Right. As long as they come out first thing, I'm happy. And it's good to have. Um, obviously, it's good to have Johanna in the group because you know she's marvellous and clever and all of those things. But also, she always brings cake <laughs> and quite often booze, which is you know it's what you want in a work What's colleague. Let's be honest. It's what you want. So now we're going to come on to our main theme in a minute, which is about our funding paper, but I just wanted to ask both of you what your, what your rail take of the week is. Innovation and rail. Tell us something, something new. My rail take of the week? Yeah. Hmm, I don't know, really. Um, my rail take of the week is, well, you, watch that you show always say that I go on a political rant. Do you? <laughs> and I try not to, but I did watch the Ben Elton programme about how successful or not um, the privatisation of the railways has been and that was quite interesting actually. I don't want to go into it too deeply because I will, it might appear to be ranty but um, I, yeah, I, I'm yet to kind of delve into some of the people that he spoke to to find out whether they, uh, not that I want to be you know weird about anything but you kind of do have to look people up don't you to see whether you know you feel that they are authentically talking about stuff that you can trust you know right. that they are saying so uh you know i'm gonna sort of park that for a moment because i haven't looked everyone up because a couple of people on the program i recognized you and others i didn't so um but yeah it's quite interesting to have a kind of 
to have someone like Ben Elton just giving quite a, I mean he was quite a harsh critic, but talking about the railways as a, a public good, you know, which is something that I think we all need to hear. Do you know what I mean? It's I like but I didn't see that programme, so where could people find it if they wanted to? It was well, dispatches. I think it was dispatches or something mm. like that. Yeah, Not yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think so. I mean, I did just come across it. I didn't it just sort of was on. Could we could, we could we find it out and put it on our next news, Lisa, if people wanted to look it up? Well, the link. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. We could, yeah, we could definitely do that. I mean, it was just, you know, it was quite interesting just because it's it's heartening for me to hear about the rail sector as being, you know, or the rail industry, railways, don't want to talk, don't want to use all that language, the railways as being something that is very important to people's lives, you know, and that should actually be a work, you know, like a working system that is invested in properly so that people can actually, you know, not just travel around, but also, you know, get on to other forms of transport from the railway, that it's like an important kind of public good which I think, for me, that's what I got from that, and I think that's something that's a bit lost because I think sometimes it's you know all these bus- you know is there a business case? Can we afford it? You know, can we afford the terribly expensive railways? Um, it's like, can we afford not to invest in uh, mass mass transit? I don't think so. But what do you think, Liam? Um, I think, as a background of the transport planner, yes. We can invest in it and we can afford most of these things that we want to do. However, just going back to it, if all the railways were built by private companies, then why are we assuming they're a public good? Well, I mean, he, he majored on a, a line, which I can't remember exactly where it was. I think it was in Cumbria or something that used to be, uh, that was a, a, an old railway line that's kind of went into, it stopped being used as passenger railway. It, went, it became a freight railway and then it's just been, you know, closed for many, many years and he was talking about, um, you know, whether there is a kind of case to, re, to, to um, rebuild it because obviously you can't just reopen it because it was, um, you know, looked like a sort of grassland park. Um, <laughs> but it, that was in an area where actually there were quite a lot of people that were it was in a community where actually even though the kind of overall statistics about the north of England for example are that most there's much higher car usage so that's kind of always the argument of like how can you make a case for railway when most people just get in their cars and drive everywhere it's like a chicken and egg kind of thing but actually the uh, MP for the area was on the programme or was he the councillor I can't remember councillor or MP anyway and he was a conservative um but he was saying that actually, you know, in a lot of the areas along that route, most people can't afford to have a car. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, but they, you know, they majored on one woman who was trying to get to work every day and the train was either cancelled, there's only one an hour, she's constantly late for work, she can't afford a car. You know, and that was just a tiny little example. But I just think, I just thought it was an interesting, you know, it was an interesting way to present the fact that actually, you know, you do need to... Um, there needs to be kind of reasonably, reasonably cheap and sustainable forms of transport for people that don't have any other options. The thing that I always find interesting about that argument, and maybe Liam as a transport planner who studied this, you can answer this, because always, it's always perplexed me because before I got into transport, and I've always been an advocate of public transport ever since I was a small girl, 
was that I could never understand why are roads investments but railways subsidies? Mm. Mm. You know, because st- it's all infrastructure. And then when I take it forward to sort of like my adult life, you know, the place where I lived, you know, and it's interesting because it's been touched on a bit recently about um, Cambridge, you know, a city that has not been built for cars and has a huge congestion problem of people getting into it. And they spent billions widening the A14. And they could have, you know, expanded the railway probably for the same money or cheaper, yet mm. chose not to. So. Why, you know, do you, do you understand, you know, in t- terms of transport business cases, why, you know, roads are investments but rail is subsidy when it's still all infrastructure owned by UK PLC? Um, yes, because I think roads, the headline price for a road is cheaper than the headline price for a railway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I genuinely think that the operational cost for a road is cheaper because you just build the road, you maintain the road, yeah. you don't have to, the government doesn't control or subsidise or specify who drives on the road, apart from buses. So for them it's just a piece of concrete, I mean it's like building a runway and assuming that people fly planes. But I think the A14 in Cambridge was particularly to get freight to and from Felixstowe faster, but it also acts as the bypass for Cambridge. So the opportunity part, there was yeah, for the train. Part of it was that, but it was also because of the congestion. And I sort of like, and I think this is the really funny thing about because obviously Cambridge has huge park and rides, and and you know and they've got the guided busway and that because they're trying to continuously solve this problem. And part of it was that you know because I you know people that say for example drove from Peterborough to, or drive from Peterborough to Cambridge, you know they were increasingly having to leave home earlier and earlier mm-hmm. to get to the office. Yeah, so it doesn't seem to make sense just because, you know, another sort of like transport cliche is that you build, you widen roads and we just fill them. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So actually you don't really, you know, so the, the, the benefit is very short term. Yes. Well, elect a government who rewrites policy to prioritise the transport you want. But I think... <laughs> But as we all know, but as we all know, transport is not a priority when we all vote at, you know, um, at elections. It very, very. If you're lucky, it might have two or three lines in about transport policy because we all have, particularly now, we all have bigger priorities, don't we? Well, access to opportunity should be one of the highest priorities, and transport, transport is access yeah. opportunity. And also, net zero should be one of the highest priorities, and transport is one of the biggest emitters of carbon transport overall. And I think that. You know, it's kind of slightly concerning that the current government seem to sort of think that electric cars are going to solve all the problems that we've got in terms of transport, you know, decarbonisation. Well, it's all right. We don't have enough power to generate. So we don't have enough power to power them. So it'll be all right because that will just stop the car use. Yeah, well, I mean, cars. <laughs> it doesn't. I know it's a comp, you know, I know it's a complicated picture, and it's you know, it, obviously there is lots of carbon embedded carbon in cars. There's lots of embedded carbon in trains, um, but you know, equally congestion is a big problem in terms of economic productivity in this country. I think. I mean, if you actually got people to work, I mean, I know there's patches of evidence about how much um, it's cost the economy, people sitting in traffic jams. 
Um, and that, you know, air pollution is also a problem, and even electric cars produce pollution because the tyres do. So it's you're not you know, getting rid of all the pollution. You're not getting rid of all right. the pollution. You're certainly not uh, addressing the the congestion. Um, and also, I just think it's like almost like a kind of not exactly philosophical, but like a societal thing. I mean, I think, and I had a conversation was it with you, Liam? I can't remember with someone sort of saying. What's interesting at the moment, if, you, if you're someone like me or us that travel on trains a lot, is actually le- leisure travel is on the up. And actually, I travel on HS1 a lot because I live in Kent. And you see loads of people like having lots of fun on the train now. Like on a, you know, Saturdays and Sundays are like, as busy as during the week, interestingly. You know, people sort of travelling up to London with their little, you know, bottles of Prosecco and they're kind of like having a, having a nice time. And that's, I think that's something that actually is part of the whole positive narrative around rail. We Can't do that in Scotland, booze is banned. Oh, booze is so bad. <laughs> do you know, it's interesting because I, I was just about to go on to a positive story about <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that there's going to be this pilot about doing away with peak yeah. because mm-hmm. as we know Scotland has had a slower recovery um, post-pandemic in terms of passenger numbers so that is you know so like everyone's experimenting a bit with you know fares and I think probably in terms of UK Scotland is probably going a bit more than maybe some others by having this six-month pilot to see what you know what that does and I think and I think it's quite interesting because originally it was going to be a very limited pilot but then as somebody you know pointed out how you're going to if you only do it on certain routes it's just going to be confusing so sensibly they've implemented it in the whole of Scotland but um I've not seen much enforcement of that no drinking on on Scottish trains policy because I've been on plenty of trains where people have still been bringing their tinnies with them. (laughs) Have you been taking tinnies with you? Uh I wouldn't like to suggest that you need alcohol to have fun. I'm not saying I am not suggesting that at all. I haven't seen just saying that. I'm just saying I haven't seen much enforcement Uh, because of course he wants to enforce a whole load of drunken women on a hen party. But yeah, I just uh, I think it's, uh, it's it's something that we should probably talk about more when we're talking up rail, which we obviously all do as advocates of the railway. You know, it's a, it's a nice way to travel. You know, but I think it's the, it's interesting, sort of like thinking about the main purpose of why we're all in the room today, talking about the recent um, paper that was that was published on improving the innovation funding ecosystem because we, we are talking about ecosystems and we are talking about in, innovation you know, um, around um, around rail transport and, that. and I guess really it would be useful um, for us to, to explore you know what are you know what are the challenges you know for, for uh, micro and small businesses in, in sort of like you know, accessing that ecosystem mm. and how they get there. Well, shall I say a bit about why we what, what what we did and why we did it, and then Liam can say a bit about kind of what, what we found. Um, what but we you wrote the report. Us. I'm just assuming I'm here to look pretty. I'm assuming you're talking. Yeah, but Johanna's going to interview you. You're looking pretty on the radio, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so um, anyway. Right, so introduce our report. I'm going to introduce our report. So we, I came up with a marvellous <laughs> idea of, of having, a, having a, a name for all of our report series going forward, which is Small Voices Ask for Big Changes. And that is because... Yes, I so did, Liam. You know? <laughs> Typical, you say want to swear typical, typical man, IP typical thief. man IP trying thief. to take the, uh, you know, to take the um, kudos. But anyway, it was uh, one of the two women in the Rain Innovation Group that came up with it. Okay, I'm taking it. Um, so we're going to call all of our reports now. They're all going to be sitting under that um, marvelous banner that I thought of. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, because obviously we are a small voice, because we're a small organisation with lots of small companies within it, and we like to think that we can identify and ask for big changes, that's why we thought it would be good. So this next one is um, in the series is a report that we decided to pull together, because obviously lots of our members are small micro SME businesses, uh, many of them are kind of coming up with interesting digital solutions, tech solutions, and wanting to find a home for them in rail. And so they are um, looking to the sort of funding ecosystem to help them do that. And uh, we, we, we kind of had heard anecdotally many times over the, over the course of the time that the Rail Innovation Group has been in existence, that actually their experiences were not wholly positive in that they might have successfully got funding from their, you know, whichever sort of funding source that they went to, um, but actually the outcome of them receiving the funding and actually getting the whatever product or approach or whatever it was that they had into market to be sort of commercially viable didn't seem to be particularly successful. Um, so we talked to our members in a bit more detail. We decided to sort of write a short snappy report which we did which basically just set out some questions that we had and then we kind of pulled it into a few themes to try and work out exactly what it was we were trying to say that needed to happen really to make things better so that we could get actually talk to government in the future and say well look this is what our members are saying this is where we think that perhaps we could add more value um, so that's what we did. So, um, I mean, we came up with three, I'm looking at our press release. We had sort of top three asks from funders, which were to improve the funding ecosystem by overhauling the funding process using a consultative process. So in other words, please talk to us and we will help you <laughs> to make the process better and more effective with better outcomes. The second one was that we wanted um, that there is a strong entrepreneurial culture and that that needs to be supported through the process so that you know encouraging sort of innovation risk taking whatever you want to call it is actually kind of born through the process which we don't we don't feel like it is at the moment so all of the quotes within the report from our members are anonymized but one of the quotes that kind of supports that particular theme is and I'm quoting now, the application process doesn't allow for you to learn or work with a customer on the product. It encourages waterfall building, I love that term, waterfall building, but doesn't include market feedback or the opportunity to scale and change the approach. 
In fact, the current system penalises us in brackets if we modify during delivery to meet the opportunity. So that's um, that's just kind of that's how we set the report out, which is that we kind of pulled out some of the key things that we thought would be interesting, and then we kind of backed that up with some anonymised quotes. Um, the other sort of big area that, that came out of the research was that we it really showed that actually the application process could be vastly improved by encouraging cross-industry collaboration at the point of application. So um, that was like, you know, collaboration between startups, it's, it's established companies, universities, actually could help create a funding ecosystem that was much more um, insightful and successful, I suppose, in terms of, you know, talent development, knowledge sharing, that kind of thing. So they were kind of the top three things that came out. Could I, can I ask you a question on that? Yes. Because obviously you did most of the engagement with the members. So did you, from all your questionnaires and your surveys and your engagement with them, did you draw all of that and put that into a report? Or did you curate the relevant bits that you wanted to be evidence in the report? Well, I pulled it all together into one place to begin with. And then I kind of themed, I, I pulled out some themes from all of the kind of engagement that I had, which is why it's, you know, typical with this kind of thing is that we ended up with quite a small snappy report, but we had lots and lots of, you know, um, right. we had quite a big document behind behind that. So, um, but yeah, so we, I, I pulled together all of the comments under each of the questions and then inevitably you know shuffle things around because some people answer questions in different ways or start talking about something else when you're doing sort of um when you are doing um what's the word um sub quite subjective engagement do you oh. know what i mean you'll get people that will talk about all sorts of things you know it's not like answering a question a questionnaire or something you'll get people that well and um, also we're asking about like their business growth exactly sure yeah they're passionate, about. they're passionate about it you know they've had very different experiences uh, some of them have had positive experiences most have had a sort of mixture of positive and negative and some have some some had some really clear you know quite quite bad experiences really that kind of put them off rail which is very disappointing so um i think it would be interesting to explore a bit <coughs> about that whole entrepreneurial culture um because and the reason why i think it'd be interesting to explore that in a bit more detail because some people might find it useful because there is a live um innovate uk competition yeah um first of a kind 2023 that was launched a couple of weeks ago with applications yeah. going in, in on the 26th of July and the limitations that you said about the current application process that you know it doesn't you know it limits learning it limits collaborating with customers limits scalability and adaptability as part of the process yet what's really interesting from what I can believe in terms of the difference between applications that are successful and those that aren't successful, if you get your feedback on your applications, that quite often they point out, couldn't see how you were going to scale this product, couldn't see how you were going to take this market to product. So it's quite a big element of the application process. So why why are you know our members finding it difficult to go to the next level on whatever that is they develop at the innovation funding stage? Because I don't think there doesn't seem to be any 
d deep engagement between the funders and the and the applicants. So I think it's just it, it appears to be, you know, a kind of a a tick box exercise. I don't want to, say, you know, that seems a bit um, harsh, but you know, it's like if you're going to offer, you know. It's quite. It's much easier in a way, isn't it, to have a pot of money and then think, okay, we're going to look at these different applicants and they're going to kind of, you know, we've got a list of criteria and we'll match them to that and then we'll give them the funding. But it's like to actually join up the dots between the funding, what industry actually needs, you know, which is another big thing, isn't it? And, and particularly uh, what, what, what the, industry is allowed to buy. And, yeah, exactly. But... From my understanding of the way the Innovate UK process works is that industry collaborate with Innovate UK on what the challenges are and that's how the challenges are set? Yes, I mean, I don't know, okay, so I from my previous knowledge know that you have, Johanna, have quite good knowledge of the people who come up with this scheme in the first place. So, I, from your background, do you think that those people who came up with the scheme in the first place understand the way small companies work? And there's a $64 million dollar <laughs> election, isn't there? Because if this scheme, if public funding, let's not just pick off us of a kind, if public funding is designed to help innovation, is that innovation the mass innovation that government wants, or is it small companies coming up with lots of good little products? Because those two things are not the same because the public sector cannot accommodate small little companies coming up with loads and loads of interesting things. Yeah, I agree with, I agree with that last point. And I think, you know, is it almost questioning the very process? Yeah, it yeah. is. Because, well, a couple of, here's a couple of more anonymised quotes, okay, in that vein. So one is... The way to craft a successful submission almost limits the potential innovation we could offer, which is which is not what the idea not is. what you would want. Yeah, because there's probably there's a way to win a competition, isn't there? Yes. Something even something which is also was also quite surprising to me, which and this was just one of several. It feels like the assessors are scoring the quality of the bid writing rather than the quality of the innovation, perhaps because they don't always they don't always understand the product. Which again is that that's quite a damning sort of sort of bit of feedback, isn't it? Really, um, but one that we you know we had to kind of consider as part of this. But I think the route, yeah, the route to market thing. A lot, of, a lot, of, a lot of the um, feedback that we got was just that really there was a there's a real gap between the process of actually writing the bid getting it successfully in and getting the money, it's almost like that's completely separate to ever considering where that product yeah, I think is going to end up. I think it is a really interesting... Whereas it should be absolutely connected, shouldn't it? It's like, why would you give someone funding without actually knowing that there was a, there was a place for that at the, end of, at the end of the process? Because I think it is interesting about, you know, the whole um, growth of be the first of a kind competition because you know when when it was launched I'm like because are we in our sixth year now sixth or seventh year you know maybe is that it wasn't very well known not many people applied and then of course you know 
pandemic happened and what did they have something like seven thousand applicants <laughs> um and you know and they only you know ever you know have you know, limited funding but of course because of the pandemic they extended the, the, the pan you know the, the amount of funding available but i think it's the challenge on you know winning a bid i think is the right one because you know how can you write a full go-to or even a bulleted go-to-market strategy on the scalability of a product and indicate, you know, its potential growth and where you would where your customers are in four hundred words. Mm. So it is Well because you might not even know. Precisely. Why would you know? How could you know? I so, mean you're lucky you might be lucky so, enough so, to know. So on that point, yeah. um, what are you recommending on how the funding process could be made better? Well, so we do, we do have some thoughts. So at the end of this report we put some next steps and we've engaged with the public sector about the report. We've subsequently had a meet-up and a wider discussion with our membership that's going to lead to a round table and we, we feel that it's appropriate to do another follow-up report which is our specific recommendations. If you're going to carry on with this methodology and this mechanism for funding, these are the things you need, you should really consider doing to make it more effective. But we're not saying that this is the best way to do public funding of innovation. So I don't think I can answer that question until we've gone through that process. I mean, in my head, I know what the recommendations are, but that's coming up with the answer before we've done the work. But what sort of, um, so not wanting to, you know, um, you know, to say what the solutions would be, but what sort of challenges are you seeking to sort of like address as part of the next stage of this work? You know, what sort of things are you interested in engaging in? Uh, the challenge that needs to be overcome, from my point of view, you don't know more about the report, is the fact that at the moment, too many people are funded for a project. Sorry, too many people, sorry, let's go back. Too many people miss out on funding because they don't know how to answer the questionnaire properly. And then, too many people get funding for a project that's funded for nine months and just die to death. And that's a complete waste of public money. How do you get the successful projects a good opportunity to expand in rail or public? Or, or, or elsewhere, yeah. Elsewhere. That is the gap that needs to be overcome first because then you're reinforcing the value that you've already spent. But then you need to look at the barrier to lots of these companies winning any of this money. And it's not that they don't have good ideas, it's that they don't know how this system works properly. Mm. And also, in some respects, I mean, as part of that engagement, you know, we heard from a couple of, well, several actually, of our members who had been funded to explore a product and then found out much later that another startup had been funded to explore a very similar product and yet there was no way for them to sort of collaborate because they didn't know about each other. So for me, and I mean this is about, you know, this is about innovation of the process. You know, this is why I, I, this is what I'm always banging on about when people talk about innovation because I'm not a sort of techie rail person. Most people, when you talk to them about innovation, they go, "Oh yeah, it's like an innovative, like you know, product, a thing, a technical thing that can do something amazing that no one's thought of before." But I don't always. That's not where my brain goes. My brain goes to this need the, the funding mechanism needs to be innovative. Do you know what I mean? It, it needs to not be tick boxy. It needs to not be, you know, 
put the funding out, get a load of applications in, fill out an, a, a, some sort of whatever they fill out, check off who's won, give the money out, move on. That's about as far from innovative as it can be, you know? So it's about the process becoming more innovative. Because mm. actually, you know, if you've got like three or four startups that are all, are all coming into this, into whatever funding or organisation you might be talking about with a similar product, what a brilliant opportunity to get some industry collaboration going on. Do you know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing for me is almost more important around innovation than coming up with some, you know, fancy there's kind of two points that, as you were um, speaking there, Debs, that I thought were quite interesting because we have a couple of members who've been really successful who started off their businesses through getting Innovate UK funding mm-hmm. and they're now really successful. So, when you were talking to them, I don't know whether you explored this or not, did they tell you about, you know, how they made that leap, you know, was there, you know, was there any support from the funders, you know, in terms of mentoring and directing them to where, or did they have to explore that themselves, and did, did they have to find that themselves? They had to explore that themselves, and, and, you know, let's take this as a way of bigging up the Rail Innovation Group, because uh, the one big circle who are were part of this you know us developing this report who are one of our members it's anonymous no but they one big circle talks to us because they are success they have successfully received funding so they were kind of like a separate bit of engagement as part of this report because they've been extremely successful they were you know a small startup but to be honest that they were very clear about the fact that actually they they became successful by chance because they came and found the Rail Innovation Group and we put them in front of people and they managed to speak to the right person here and the right person here in the industry and they somehow other and they've been quite open about that. It's not like they you know that and that's not really um particularly helpful for people that might not be lucky enough to find and the have, right and people. They have, and they have a them. very charming founder as well. And they have a very charming founder. But you know it's like you know a lot of people that we spoke to, a lot of our members have said that actually accessing mentoring, ad hoc support from relatable organisations would have been extremely helpful. Um, but, yeah. And then I I was also, you know, and this is kind of also part of that, is about the whole industry collaboration as well, about how difficult industry collaboration is. And I, mean, I think if you're in a certain part of industry, it's maybe quite you know, if you're maybe a larger organisation, it might be quite easy. But I'm wondering if that's also becoming more challenging as you know, sort of like as um, I don't want to say the political climate, but I mean, you know, I mean, you know, sort of like political climate with a small p, mm. you know, like because you know the industry is you know sort of you know at a standstill while it's waiting for legislation. You know, things you know things are challenging in costs and everything like that. And I think resources are an issue. So, are, are members finding that industry collaboration is actually getting harder rather than easier, despite the fact that we've all been on this innovation journey for quite a long time? I think inevitably, if you're a small company, it's quite difficult to find the time to sort of, um, you know, to, to make that leap to go and talk to people and stuff like that, because often people just don't have the time, you know, it's like you're trying to run a small company. Um, I mean, interestingly, like with my old hat on of working in local government as well, you know, like if you look at things like um, 
what used to be the local, well, what is still the local government association. You know, they had like their improvement and development agency where they did tons of stuff around networking and you know getting people together and all of that. But to be honest, I think inevitably when when funds start to be removed, as they have been in certainly in the public sector over the, the last decade. That's the first stuff to go. It's like the nice to have stuff, like the kind of networking events and all that sort of thing. That's why I think people really appreciate organisations like the Rail Innovation Group, because that's what we're all about, is actually getting people to just come and hang out and chat. But actually, if you, I mean, I don't have any sort of like empirical evidence to back that up other than my experience in with the um, organisations like the LGA. But, you know, there's less and less of that. Because commercially everything's got becoming a bit, you know, more difficult. You know, it's obviously, you know, the fiscal climate at the moment is challenging for a lot of businesses, and that's always amplified the further down, you know, down the kind of food chain that you go. So the smaller you are, the the harder it is, kind of thing. So I think, particularly in rail at the moment, the just on my talking to people who work for the rail industry, whereas operates or anything is because funds are so dry at the moment getting any any discretionary spend is a big long process Mm. so the less is they kind of just don't have the energy to go through that process which means that they are less receptive to people they're meeting who might come up with a good idea who might have something to show off so they're focused on those uh, moral formalised programmes and that's the only time they're open for new ideas is at that that event or at that funding stream or at that uh, trade fair. Uh, And are you talking specifically about sort of like the whole sort of like train operator franchising type process? Obviously a lot of the time uh, sort of like innovation is written into contracts and of course everything's just acting on a rollover on yeah, um, emergency contracts or just no, it's not necessarily like just train operators. I mean, that is an issue for train operators. Um, it's just that things because everything. I think to be honest, most people are just waiting. They are just waiting for the next version of rail, whether that's Great British Rail or different government or anything. But because they don't think that there is a route to engage, there's, no, there's nothing they can do if they talk to a small digital company who has a good, cool product, unless that goes through a formal process. So they're just less in, less incentivized to network and talk to these companies or learn about what they do. I think that's interesting because you mentioned that at the beginning, you know, when we were saying about um, not the process isn't necessarily set up to know what they're going to be buying or what they want or they need or whatever. So, so in terms of next steps, do you want to just summarise what the next steps are going to be and what, you know, how people can engage with the Rail Innovation Group and participate in the next steps of this innovation landscape and changing the way that funding and the ecosystem can work? Well, as Liam said, we're going to, what, we, what we would like to do is get some sort of a roundtable event um, together where we can have some sort of influential industry people around that table um, who are, you know, involved in, who might, who, are, who can be kind of instrumental in making any changes that are necessary in this funding landscape. 
And then we would like to, at that round table, the most obvious thing for us to do is to bring a couple of our members who have contributed to this report to give a first-hand account, really, aligned to some of the key themes that we've pulled out to, sh to, to talk, uh, you know, about the reality, of their reality of, 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 you know, trying to secure funding and then get that product to market. And then also have some of the success, success stories to talk about how that's happened, why that's happened, and then hopefully kind of generate a discussion in, you know, ultimately what we want to do is to, is to, to change the way that, that things are funded to make the process more successful. And when are you hoping to hold the round table? Well, we're hoping to hold the round table in the autumn. So we're talking to the um, catapult, Connected places. Connected places, Catapult, um, to see whether they can help us with that. Obviously, we're a small organisation, we need to be funded project on project, so um, we're hoping that we can work with others to kind of pull that together. Um, and then from that, then hopefully we could um, get some changes in the, the way that this, the, the way that the uh, process is, is, is well, what we what we would like is to make is to improve the sort of speed to market and wider adoption. I mean, what we want to see is that the funding is actually relates to a a very clear outcome, which is that that in, that that in fact that that product or approach or what have you actually goes to market, yes. rather than just being funded and then, as Liam said, dropping off the cliff and everybody sort of moves on to the next thing. And are you hoping that? some of the participants that will come to the round table will be some of these people that set the policies or are involved in the decision making? Absolutely. That's, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the challenge is set. Yes. Challenge is set. We have engaged with some of them. We've sent them hard. We sent them a lovely pink report. Yes, with a letter saying, look at this report. And, and, and how's feedback been? Well, from the... Um, from the uh, hard copy reports that we sent, very little. Disappointing. I was going to say, that disappointing. It is a bit. Yeah, yeah, it is a bit because you know, it's it was a it was quite a kind of diplomatic report. We could have been much meaner. <laughs> 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 we, you know, backed up by you know the, the things that. Uh, that, that our members success. So it would be version two if they don't take notes. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting debate that at the moment, isn't it? Do you get more by taking a softly, softly approach or has been sort of like debated, you know, recently about sort of like certain climate activists, you know, do you go in and throw paint and things at I mean the report's right pink, you can't miss it. <laughs> to say was look the, we wanted to say very clearly in a kind of in a you know not in a great big massively long wordy report but in a kind of a reasonably short report you know this is the challenges as we as our members have experienced here's some verbatim quotes that back up kind of some of the problems that there seem to be in this funding ecosystem and here are some of the things that we think would be quite actually not that difficult to put right so we wanted it to be positive you know we wanted it to be a sort of solution orientated piece of work and i would just like to drop in there that we, that we did not do this report on behalf of our members we did this report on behalf of small companies and the rail industry because we 
are con persistently and consistently discouraging small companies from entering the rail supply chain because of the way we go about commissioning either small companies, digital solutions or innovation, it is not in the best interest of rail's future what is currently happening. Hmm. And, we, and we want, you know, that's why we're all here, is because we think that the rail industry is a great industry in which we need to make it better. And I think on that note, we should close. But I think also for next time, we should talk about why it's important to have small companies and innovators come into the industry and why that leads to a better industry and better diversity and inclusion. Mm. Excellent. That's next what we'll time. do then. Next time. With Zoom too. <laughs> right. Goodbye from Soho. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Moves Us. We hope we moved you. For more episodes, you'll definitely want to subscribe to our channel. Until next time.